Welcome to Coastline Church, seeking renewed faith in Humboldt County by being settled and secure in God's love. To learn more, visit coastlinefoursquare.com. Good morning. We're in Acts 9 and 10. Well, I'm actually only going to do about half of Acts 9 because I, I want to emphasize I want to emphasize visions, trances, and visitations. <clears throat> so in Acts 8 is when we saw the persecution really break out strong in Jerusalem. So strong that it scattered a lot of the believers. Not the apostles, but the other believers. And then last week, <clears throat> Linda covered that in the scattering, Philip went out and preached the gospel. We had the story of the eunuch and all kinds of stuff. This is actually, even though it's the next chapter, it's happening at the same time. It's happening concurrent. Because Paul... Oh, sorry. There we go. <clears throat> okay, now? I'm glad the, the other mic guy's there today. Thanks, Jared. I really want us to get the context of what's going on here. It's why I'm picking just part of 9 and 10. Because there's a lot of drama that happens. And it's like visions and visitations. And I'm a person, uh, especially younger in my life, it's like, God, just tell me something direct. Like people talk about spiritual dreams. Well, God, I don't, need a I don't want a vague dream I have to interpret. Just speak to me. And he does. And then there are times he doesn't. You know, I, I, uh, well, I don't want to get to that. But, you know, it's like, but I would, well, I will get to this much. I took a class from someone about interpreting dreams. And I loved it because she tied it all to scripture. And then she gave an assignment of come back later with a, a dream you've had from the Lord. And I misunderstood the assignment. She meant like any time in your whole past. I thought the assignment was this week you better have a dream from the Lord because you've got to have something. <laughs> So, so I asked the Lord to give me a dream, and nothing happened until like four days later, and I was just had this vivid dream, and I woke up at three in the morning with it, and it was so vivid, and I realized I've got to write this down because she'd given the tip about having a book with you, but it was there was so powerful. I actually got up and went downstairs and wrote about it, and I'm just saying that I guess to say we need to be open, we need to be open to encounter, however God chooses to encounter. And I really do want to talk about what's going on with Paul and Peter and everybody. And then I do want us to think about that. Why did God choose this way? Because he orchestrated not only speaking to them, but he was very particular on how he spoke to them. And, and I think God wants to speak to us something about that. And that's why that's what I'm going to emphasize. I'm going to skip parts of nine to just emphasize what I think God wants today. Okay, so there's the, the scattering. And see, with the persecution in Jerusalem and the believers scattering around, a lot had to Damascus. Damascus is a large city. There are a lot of synagogues there, a lot of Jews there. So Paul is saying, hey, I'm, I'm the young hot guy. I mean, the Pharisees are happy with him. He studied Aaron Gamaliel. He's the rising star of a Pharisee, and he is passion. He has this passion big time. And it's like, hey, give me some letters, and I'll take this show on the road. 
I'm going to head up to Damascus and we're going to, we're going to go to the synagogues there and we're going to give me these letters so I can arrest people and bring them back. And that's where he is in Acts 1 through 9. Meanwhile, Saul's still, Saul still breathing threats and murder. I should emphasize that. Breathing threats and murder. When we say persecution, it wasn't like, oh, they, they were slamming people on Facebook. No, he's, he's arresting men and women, children. He's throwing them in jail. Um, he's threatening murder. There actually was murder. He was there with Stephen. I just, I just want to bring up this thing because I won't talk about it much later. But we, have, we often talk about forgiveness. And I think we gloss over of when Saul has his conversion, that's a radical change for him. He eventually ends up in fellowship, maybe with the same people whose husband or wife or kids were arrested by him. You know, what if there's relatives of Stephen in some of the groups these around? And he was he was giving assent to the murder. I mean, forgiveness had to become real. Paul writes a lot about forgiveness. He writes a lot in his epistles, even though he wrote them decades later. And even later, we hear his testimony like way back, at, way farther ahead at the end of Acts. He still talks about what happens in 9 and 10. Well, mainly he talks about what happens in 9. And, and when he talks about that forgiveness, it's so real to him. Because he knows he's with believers that he used to harass. And some of them may have relatives that are no longer with them because of stuff Paul did. It, it's, I don't want to gloss over that, or at least like us to think about that sometimes. Okay, so he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And I want to emphasize the way, because it's used a lot in Acts, and I think it's good because it underscores faith in Jesus is not about mental agreement. In our culture, we say, oh, I believe something, and we just mean I, I factually agree. Two plus two is four. Mm -hmm. Jesus died on the cross. He's the Son of God. He rose again. That's a list of facts I agree to. James says even the devil knows facts. Is this whole thing about in their culture, and we see it in other cultures, when they talk about your belief, your philosophy, your, your core values, they expect it's the whole way you live, that faith in Christ affects everything. It affects the way we do everything. And that's why it's referred to as the way. Okay? I have in their parentheses this this particular uh, the excessive rage isn't in this particular chapter, but later in Acts and in some of his epistles, <clears throat> Paul uses the, the Hebrew term for excessive rage, exceedingly angry. As Paul says you know, at this time referring to it is, I persecuted the church with a great passion. I was exceedingly mad. I had excessive rage. He's basically saying, I freaking lost my mind over this. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm going after him with everything I've got. <clears throat> so as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul. Interesting that Jesus calls his name twice. Saul, Saul. Why do you persecute me? He asked, who are you, Lord? And, and the people with him, they saw the light, and they actually heard a sound, but they didn't understand the words. Um, that's not always clear in this chapter, but again, later when it's explained, the people with him heard the sound, but they didn't understand what was being said. <clears throat> the reply came, I am Jesus who you are persecuting, but get up, enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. 
The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the sound but saw no one. We do know from other passages they saw light, though. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. They led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus, because they were expected in Damascus. Um, he actually goes to the street called Straight and stays with someone named Judas, because they were expecting him. <clears throat> For three days he was without his sight and neither ate or drank. The reason why is this is a major mind reset. I'm not surprised he didn't eat or drink. This has got to freak him out. I know who I am. I'm the rising, I'm the big shot. I got this. Like, hey, man, my career is going places because the Pharisees love me. They, they love the fact that I'm passionate. I'm going out and doing God's thing. And then he gets an encounter and finds out he's wrong about everything. Gets an encounter where, what is going on? Yeah, I'm the Jesus you're persecuting. Now I'm blind. I can't see. Yeah, so I'm, I'm not surprised for these three days. He's like, I can't eat or drink. I'm, I'm, I'm freaked out. Major mind freak out. During this time, he actually has another vision. It's brought up later, but um, in his prayer, when he's praying, he has this vision of a man named Ananias coming and healing his sight. So we'll talk about Ananias. So you have Ananias the devout. He's referred to that in other places of scripture. Ananias the devout has a vision about Saul's other vision and, and about how, well, actually, the Lord speaks to him, calls him by name, and says, you need to go to Sage Street, meet this guy named Paul, this Paul from, or Saul at that time, Saul of Tarsus, and he's had this vision of you coming and healing his eyes. And his whole reaction is, what are you talking about? I know exactly who this guy is. He is harming your saints. He is doing damage to your saints and your people. It's almost like, okay, wait, he's come to town to arrest us like a predator. And you're saying, I as a sheep that he's coming like a lion to get, you want to just have me actually just go and deliver lunch to him. Okay, you, don't, you aren't going to let me hide. You want me to go to him. Uh, the phrase he actually uses at the end of this is powerful. So this is now down in verses 14 and 16. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. I know I talked about that two weeks ago, but this whole idea of your name, it's not, it's not like an incantation. Ask something in Jesus' name, you just throw Jesus' name at the end of it and it magically works. In your name, in that culture, in that mindset is, that was the whole idea again about like your way. If you're doing something in their name, you're saying it is all based on that authority, that person. It's what, what the Pharisees constantly harass them saying, I do not want you apostles. We do not want you apostles to speak any more of this name. We do not want you to preach any more in this name. Hey, you did radical healings. Would have been okay if you'd have just said God healed them, but no, you keep saying it was Jesus. We got an issue with that. Okay, so in your name, I find this is powerful. But the Lord answered to him, Go, for he is an instrument in whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how he must suffer for the sake of my name. Powerful. He's saying, Wait, you don't want me to go see this guy, Saul of Tarsus. He's trying to wipe out those of us that serve your name. And he's like, I got it. And I'm going to have him proclaim my name. I'm having to suffer in my name. Uh, we see this in Central Asia with groups I'm with. The most radical 
amazing church planners, two of them, but there's one in particular, he used to blow up Christian churches. And now it's like, God, God, like I look at this as that more than conquerors thing. Yeah. He's more than conquering. He got them to the other side. Because that guy bombing the churches, he wasn't the enemy. He was deceived by the enemy. And God's hand was, no, I'm not going to settle just for him not blowing up churches. I'm bringing him to my side. So kind of a sidelight, but I, I think that's a powerful sidelight. Okay, so Ananias goes to Saul, says, hey, Saul, the Jesus you met on the road, he's the real deal. Heals him. These scales fall off his eyes. Saul's baptized. And he stays there several days and starts preaching immediately. And it says, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is the Son of God. And he's extremely effective at it. Because he's so effective at it, the Jews there threaten him. And he has to be snuck out of the town. The part I want to emphasize on this, because I'm going to leave nine just right about here. But it's powerful. He's preaching in the synagogues. All the apostles and Saul, they understand Jesus is Messiah. They understand forgiveness in his name. But they don't really understand all of it yet. They're only preaching to Jews now. That's as far as their understanding went. And I think it's important for us to see, with all he knew, there's still a lot they don't know. And it takes time to know it. In Galatians 1, he talks about this time. And, he, and he, he does have this encounter, but he talks about other encounters in Galatians and in the letters. And he includes this, but there are things that happened later in his life God had to do. It says in Galatians that he said, I did not consult with any man. His whole point was, is in Galatians he's teaching the Gentiles about salvation by grace and that not by law. Important point. And he, to him it's very important they get this. He says, I got this by revelation directly from God not from men. Because after I had this encounter with Jesus, this one, I did not go and ask other men what's going on. I went away for three years. Now, exactly if that happened immediately right after this or it happened a little later, I don't want to get into that debate. Different scholars have different ideas. But the point is, he had to go away for three years and sort it out. So he knows Jesus is the Messiah, but somewhere in there it's clicking with him, wait, if I'm saved by faith, how far does that faith go? Where does law fit in? Where does, where does the Old Testament, all, what is it saying? So he had to go for three years and just him in scripture with Jesus. God, you got to show me what's going on. So he goes away and does that. Okay, so I'm moving on to chapter 10 now for a reason. But Galatians, he makes a big deal of, I spent that three years. And then I talked with Peter a bit. And then I went off for another 14 years and I preached the gospel. But I did not confer with men what salvation by grace meant. And then, I mean, many years later, 17 years after this, they finally have to sort some other things out because when God moves, it gets complicated and we have to understand it, which I'm not going to go into, but just want you to know a little context. Okay, I'm jumping up to Acts 10. By this time, Peter's in Joppa. I'm not going to explain how he got there for this thing, but he's just, you know, Peter's in Joppa. Joppa's about 30, a little over 30 miles from Caesarea. In Caesarea or Caesarea, we have Cornelius, he's a centurion, he's a godly man. And in Acts 10, when it says, he, meaning Cornelius, he and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need, prayed to God regularly. One day, about three in the afternoon, he has a vision. 
He had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear and said, What is it, Lord? The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering to God. Now send men to Joppa. This is amazing. I mean, you talk about a very detailed direction. Send men to Joppa and bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. So he has this vision. And he decides to do it. So actually he has two servants and a God-fearing uh, soldier and sends the three of them to Joppa. And so they're heading off to Joppa because he has this vision. Now remember, he's a Gentile. This is a whole new world going on at this time. So basically a Peter. So Peter's in Joppa. It's about noon. It's actually the next day because it takes him a while to go that 32 miles or so. And he's in a trance while he's hungry. And I may as well familiar with it. I don't know how to fix that, Jerry. Maybe if I took this off. Sorry. As we always say, we're the super polished church. Um, so he's in a trance and he's hungry. And he sees the heavens open and a sheet comes down. And there's all kinds of animals, four-footed. There's birds, there's reptiles. They're unclean. The actual phrase is, the phrase in Old Testament, and that's why I'm going to use that word, contaminating. And, and even, the, even the Greek, that's what that word, when it says unclean, it actually has the word, it's like, it will contaminate you if you eat it, because that's what they were taught. No, I will get contaminated. If I eat that any of that food, I am now contaminated. So Peter's like, when, when God says, lowers the sheet and says, rise, kill, eat, Peter's like, he's affronted and says, no, Lord, never in my whole life have I ever done such a thing. I would never eat these contaminated things. And God says, don't call what I have made clean right. contaminated. And I don't know why I'm not showing you this. Okay. So surely, Lord, I have never eaten anything contaminating or unclean. Right. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything contaminating that God has made clean. Yeah. And this is repeated three times. Now, it's interesting because God, you know, God could also just talk to him and say, hey, Peter, I got news for you. The Gentiles get saved. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't just say, oh, the Gentiles get saved. He does this whole vision thing. Okay. Peter actually doesn't understand the meaning. I mean, we have the advantage. We've read this before, most of us. So we know where it's going. Peter doesn't. So it says Peter now has to meditate on because he has no idea what God's talking about. Why are you showing me a sheet of things it's only in a vision. I can't eat him anyway, and I'm really hungry. But you're showing me stuff that's unclean. I don't know what you're doing. So he's thinking about it. While he's thinking about it, the men from Joppa arrive. Actually, they stay at the gate because I don't want to get that. Anyway, they call out that they want to see Simon Peter. While that's happening, Peter's meditating up on the roof about what this could mean. And then God tells him, hey, three guys are looking for you downstairs. You need to go downstairs and just go with them. Don't hesitate. I mean, you almost get the impression he's saying, you don't even have to ask questions, just go with them. So Peter, well, he actually doesn't quite obey that. He does go with the three men. He did ask questions. And uh, it's just interesting. Actually, what he does, he invites the men and says, hey, I'll, I'll put you up for the night. So he lets them stay with him and takes care of them. Sounds really generous, but then I always think, well, is it Peter taking care of him or Simon the Tanner? Because it's not Peter's house. But anyway, that's... Sorry, I get distracted. <clears throat> okay. 
So, sorry, maybe that's too distracting for you. Don't, don't read all that yet. I want you to hear this. Peter goes with them. This is so unusual. Because when Peter asks them, they even say, hey, an angel spoke to Cornelius, the guy who sent us, to come get you. So let's go. And then Peter goes, but it's also a little different because when you're, when you're being called to a centurion's house as a Jew, that's not usually a great thing. So six brothers go with them. Six other Jewish believers go with them. So when they get to the house, Peter gets there, and Cornelius is so excited he bows down when Peter gets there. And Peter says, no, no, get up, get up. I'm just a man. Then he goes in the house, and he finds the house is full of people. Because Cornelius is excited about this guy that's going to come talk to him about God. And he gets family and friends there. So there's a lot of people there. And Peter even starts it interesting where the first thing he says is, you know, it's not even lawful for me to be in here with you. It's like, you know, this, it isn't right. Like us Jews, this is going to contaminate. It's like, it's, it's not right. But I had a vision that said I had to hear this. And he asked him, what do you want? And then they explained to him, we want to know about God. We don't really know what we want. We were just told to get you and hear it. And then Peter, I'm not going to throw this, but I find it interesting. So Peter gives a sermon. And, and Grant, you have to remember, Luke's giving you kind of the cliff notes. So we don't always literally get everything that's said. But we do know he talks to him about peace through Jesus. He talks to him in a tone that says, you already kind of know about this. Like you, you live here in Jerusalem. You've heard about Jesus. You know about the miracles. You know about the stuff that went down. So he tells them about how he's Lord of all. God was with them, that he was anointed with spirit and power. He did good in healing, freeing from tyranny all the people he's healing. Actually, he specifically says the line, he freed them from the tyranny of the adversary. <clears throat> he was crucified. He's risen. We've been witnesses to all this. That's a big line he says. And we're telling you stuff that we ourselves have seen. And he is the judge. He, Jesus, is the judge of the living and the dead. So there's forgiveness through his name. They're, they're kind of tied together. Why is there full forgiveness in the name of Jesus? Yeah, I know we have the whole atonement thing, but it's also this practical of, because he's the guy doing the judging, and he died for you. So when you get that stuck in fear of, oh no, my sins will come against me, well, hold on a minute. The guy who makes the judgment calls, he died for you. So there's forgiveness through his name. And while he's talking, the Holy Spirit immerses the Gentiles. And Peter and all the other Jews were just excited, knew exactly what's going on. No, they kind of freaked out. <laughs> and then they even realized, and it's good because Peter said, we know, this is, we know this can't be right, but yet the Holy Spirit fell on them. How can we refuse water? How can we not baptize them? So he baptizes them. There's believers. Again, in our culture, we don't get a sense for it, but this would be as radical as someone coming and saying, Hey, you know what? Turns out the Savior isn't Jesus. The Savior is Louis Schwartz down the street. It's, it's like that radical of a mind break. Because it's like, no, our identity as Jews is we are the people of God, we and not they. And, and this, is, this is breaking it. In fact, the next chapter, I won't too much, but Peter gets called on the carpet by other Jews. Like, we heard you went to this Gentile's house. What is going on? And I like it because Peter which is also what's nice about visions, he tells all the vision over in detail. When you read these chapters, you keep reading the same visions over and over again because they keep telling them to each other. But Peter's like, hey, let me tell you what happened. This vision happened. I'm preaching. Holy Spirit fell. So you know what? It's on God. Don't, don't throw rocks at me. God's obviously doing this. It's powerful. And even they still didn't fully get it. 
Like it actually is, it's like 16, 17 years later, they start wrestling with, when Jews come to Jesus, do they have, I'm sorry, when Hebrews, when Gentiles come to Jesus, do they have to become Jewish? Do we have to circumcise them? Do they follow the Jewish law? They don't figure that out and really make a decision on that for 15 years, actually 17, for 17 years later. It's a process. And I think that's important for us to realize. Because God does amazing stuff, but we're kind of slow. I see this powerful thing that we Gentiles are included. But the message I want to emphasize with this is the way God speaks to us and had to through this. Why the drama? Why does he have the encounters? Why the blinding lights? Why the blindness? Why visions of sheets? I mean, this is elaborate. Why, did, why was Saul blind for three days? Why did he have to go figure out for three years? Why all the illustrations? Even you look at scripture in general. If you had to summarize the key notes of scripture, Isaiah could be about five chapters. But why isn't it? Because it's written as poetry. Why is the Bible as big as it is? Why is there poetry in scripture? Why is all these things that do feeling in that? And here's my conclusion on it. God's after radical transformation. Radical transformation takes more than information. Giving you a list, say, oh, Jesus loves me, great. Okay, oh, let's check off the list. Yep, I believe this, let me me read the Nicene Creed. You know, we, I, I went to, uh, where I went to Propia School, we recited the Nicene Creed multiple times a week. And it's, and it's a good creed, okay, it's true. But reciting that in itself isn't the answer. Just knowing information isn't the answer. It takes engagement. It takes encounter. Because just telling Peter facts Gentiles are saved, that isn't as transformational as, wow, this whole elaborate thing made it real. Getting Paul's attention, just like getting our attention, isn't always easy as simple as, let me tell you the 10 things you need to know, Paul. Here, I can fit it on one sheet of paper. No, I'm going to strike you blind for three days because you got to get this. Yeah, you're going to have to search it out for three years because it takes time to figure this stuff out. Amen. <clears throat> it doesn't happen all at once. And the reason for that is God values humility. You look in Paul's letters, I'm still blown away. Yes, he had visions, he had dreams. Humility runs through all his teachings. And this is, a, you know, the big guy, I'm the big shot, I'm going to go around, I'm going to persecute these unbelievers, is the guy that later that writes, hey, let's be like Jesus. He's the servant of all. I want to be interested in others instead of interested in my own stuff. He took the form of the servant. I want to be a slave for Jesus. I want to be an ambassador in chains. This takes time, energy, experience. A walk with the Lord. And the big thing to me is it takes God moving and God encountering. I think the message in all this, please remember, I'm thankful we have the Bible. There are those that teach, well, now that we have the Bible, miracles stopped. Those encounters, we don't need them. We have the Bible. Well, when I go overseas, Quoting Moses, you know, preaching, I know I brought this up before, but like when Peter preached and he quotes Moses in Old Testament, we don't use that as the template when we're overseas. It worked in Acts 2 because he's preaching to Jews that grew up on Moses. They believe the scripture. They know the scripture. Countries that that we have visited, 
they have no idea what the Bible is, and they've been taught a different Bible, or a different book is the Holy Book. Quoting Moses, they don't know who Moses is. They end up involving God encounter. In reality, when you look at Scripture, so do we. Myself, I, uh, I turned away from the way I was raised because there was things that didn't make sense to me. I didn't supernaturally all of a sudden believe the Bible. I came to Jesus. I questioned the Bible. I came to Jesus without necessarily believing all the Bible. In fact, I know I didn't believe all the Bible. I came to Jesus. Jesus showed me the Bible's true. And sometimes we try to do things the opposite. Like if we just tell people the right information, if we just quote the right words to them, that'll solve it. Well, I, I challenge you to think fully really about your own testimony. Did it really come from an intellectual argument or did it come from an encounter? Did God move? He moves because it's more than information. And I'm hoping from this we get a hunger for, God, I'm amazed at what you did in Peter and Paul's life and how you moved and how you encountered them. We need encounter now. Amen. And I'm not saying I'm, I'm chasing signs and wonders. I'm just saying we have to get together with God and say, you know what, Lord? My, my friend, I won't say his name, but you know, my friend that I'm going to be spending time with, he needs to encounter you. Yeah, we can have discussions. We can have talks. But the bottom line is he needs to encounter you. We need a conversation that gets to gut level because I really don't want to talk about the theory of Genesis 4 and 8. I want to find out where's your need, God, and where is Holy Spirit interacting with you? And he will do it. He changed all of Europe because of these guys that were encountered. At the same time, the dominant, powerful culture, the top thing, within three centuries, it starts falling apart. But the church thrives. Make sense? Okay, so that's the thing I see the take-home now. I mean, there's a lot else in Acts 9 and 10. But I really thought God wanted to emphasize, look how he moved with encounter. Because we all need to have radical mindset change at times. And it doesn't always come from just reading. It comes from an experience with him. Make sense? Amen. Thank you for joining us today at Coastline Church. To find out more information, please visit coastlinefoursquare.com.